Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome. My name is Misty Sharp and I am the accreditation manager for the Adult Congenital Heart Association. And I am also an adult living with congenital heart disease. Uh, I had four surgeries uh, by the time I was five years old, and I will actually be celebrating my 33rd birthday this month. Uh, So really excited to be a part of this podcast today. This is your power bite of what you will learn in this podcast. The past several months have definitely been difficult for all of us with the emergence of COVID-19, but especially those with chronic medical conditions. So worldwide, there are 6.2 million people who have been infected with COVID-19 with a mortality of 373,000 deaths. In the United States, that number is 1.83 million infected with a mortality of 106,000 deaths. This has overwhelmingly affected states in the Northeast like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts, as well as Illinois and California. While most affected are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, Coronavirus is felt to be a highly contagious disease transmitted by particles or droplets in the air. In more severe cases, a massive immune response occurs and is highly unpredictable. High-risk features such as age, underlying medical comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity, as well as social disparities are likely linked with the worst outcome. While there are efforts by large ACHD centers to initiate and maintain a registry to assess the impact of COVID-19 on the ACHD population, it is likely that many will not be captured. Regardless, the overall impact of this disease on the lives of ACHD patients has been profound. COVID-19 has changed the way we live our lives, and even as we move forward, questions remain on how to adjust to this new normal. We'll be discussing some of those questions and concerns today with two adult congenital heart disease physicians. I'm here today with Dr. Yuli Kim, ACHD Director at the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Arthi Sabaniagam, Assistant Professor at the ACHD Program at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Nationwide Children's Hospital. Thank you to the American Heart Association for inviting me to interview both of you today to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic impacts patients with adult congenital heart disease and what resources and information are available to patients while steps are taken across the nation to return to some semblance of normal life. One of the most common questions that we have received at ACHA and I'm sure at other patient advocacy organizations, especially now as more businesses are beginning to open up again, whether it is safe to return to work and if there are risks with doing so. Can you provide guidance on that? Thank you, Misty, and the American Heart Association for inviting me. It really is a pleasure to be here. These are really unpredictable times, and it is difficult for any one of us to feel safe leaving the house and going back to work. The CDC lists congenital heart disease as one of the highest risk categories. However, there's a spectrum. The last guidelines physicians have access to was recently published in a joint collaboration between the AHA and ACC in 2018 that lists an AP, which is an anatomic and physiological classification for congenital heart disease. I encourage you all to reach out to your healthcare providers and physicians and ascertain where you fall in that spectrum. The milder your form of heart disease, the less of a hemodynamic risk you may have if you were to contract the COVID-19. 
However, it is unknown at this time how we can predict which patients are susceptible to this massive immune response. These patients seem to experience a more severe course and worse outcomes. In regards to returning to work, not only would your congenital heart disease and functional status matter, but also the kind of work that you do also plays a huge role. While we don't have guidelines, a recent perspective piece published in the New England Journal of Medicine lays out a really nice table that looks at occupational risk of contracting the virus versus the risk of death from SARS-CoV-2. Hence, the older and middle-aged patients with a high-risk condition exposed to patients with SARS-CoV-2 should be counseled that they are at high risk to work and that they may want to consider stopping work or switching to a less risky job. In all other scenarios, I encourage you to speak to your doctor to assess your level of risk and opportunities to mitigate exposure as well as take all precautions possible going forward. Thank you so much. It sounds like definitely that communication with your healthcare team and assessing your, your risk and maybe even continually assessing your risk is so important. Uh, on a related note is the topic of resuming regular medical care. Uh, I know for me, I have an ACHD appointment coming up soon. So is it safe for me to return to see my doctor and schedule routine procedures or even elective surgeries? And in addition, as you both know, dental care is so very important to ACHD patients. Is it, is it safe to also resume regular dental cleanings? Hi, Misty. Yeah, this is such an important question. Uh, we have to address this now that the stay-at-home orders are now being lifted across the country. All of these elective outpatient procedures and routine outpatient visits that were put on hold are now coming back and uh, being scheduled, and we're resuming work in the hospitals. And so as a cardiologist and as your healthcare provider, you know, your well-being and safety are obviously our top priority. We have seen in the press and all sorts of research articles that have been coming out recently about patients who have decided to stay at home because they're scared of contracting COVID-19. And, and this is totally understandable. We've seen stories of liver transplant recipients who have passed up a, a potential liver or uh, chemotherapy for cancer care, and of course, uh, people who have heart conditions who are staying at home. The New England Journal of Medicine just recently published a communication confirming this anecdotal observation we all have in the hospital of where are all the heart attacks. They're just not happening. And um, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is that they've shown that the admissions for heart attacks are down. And that is very concerning to me as a cardiologist that people might be hurting themselves actually by, by not coming in. So, so the question really is, how do you work through this as a patient? How do you balance the risk of going in and, and sort of the fears that you might have about contracting the COVID-19 uh, and, and then also balancing sort of what you know you need to do, which is to come in for your routine health screening, your checkups, and the testing. It's all very anxiety-provoking, and, and I want to say that this is very normal, but it's important for you to hear this message, which is that it is safe for you to come in to see your ACHD cardiologist. I can only speak from my own perspective at our institution, but I know that there are policies and procedures that are being put in place across the United States that are very similar to ours. So for example, if you are scheduled to see me, um, you will get a questionnaire um, that will screen you for any types of symptoms. And upon passing the questionnaire, you would be able to do a remote check-in, again, for social distancing purposes. You would stay in your car and wait for a text message or a phone call from the front desk to come in. And upon entering, you get a temperature screen. You're given a mask if you don't have one, and you're ushered straight back to your exam room. Uh, you're really not 
going to be seeing other people in the waiting room for that reason. There is universal masking. The provider will come in with eye shields, mask. Um, the rooms are wiped down. I mean, it's very sterile environment. If you have, uh, for example, a procedure, like you said, a cardiac surgery or some type of procedure to come in, you will get COVID-19 testing 24 to 48 hours prior to coming in. So it is a very, very safe environment in order to come in and get your routine care. I, wanna, I really want to emphasize that. And then for the dental part, as you know, this is a really important part of our patient population with adult congenital heart disease. And um, our office has been receiving a lot of questions about this. On March 16th, the um, American Dental Association is essentially uh, restricted practice only to emergency uh, dental procedures. That recommendation was lifted on May 30th. So here we are in June and dental offices are opening across the country. So the CDC has released some guidelines on reopening dental settings and you can find that on the CDC website uh, under coronavirus uh, 2019. But I encourage you to reach out to your own dental provider to see what policies and procedures they have in place to keep you safe because dental care is extremely important. Absolutely, very important. Thank you so much. And that's really scary to hear that, that you guys are seeing that patients who potentially have really serious health emergencies are not coming in because of fear of this. So I really appreciate that guidance. And I know I've been getting email communications from my own program about what they're doing to kind of ease those fears and, and make people feel more confident about coming in. But even though, although efforts are being made to resume medical care and reschedule appointments, COVID-19 has definitely presented unique opportunities to utilize telemedicine for patients that may still be considered high risk or for in-person appointments. What is the impact that you all have seen on COVID-19 on insurance, co-pays, and deductibles? I must say it's a really, really significant impact. I feel that a lot of practices and hospitals have really ramped up telemedicine. As of March 2020, CMS, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has increased access to telemedicine services, making it easier for patients to see and speak to their doctor during the COVID-19 pandemic. Providers can weigh or reduce co-pays or deductibles for telehealth visits under these programs. Private health insurances typically follow the same guidelines as Medicare and Medicaid, but because they are also third-party payers, this may not always be the case and can vary widely between insurance companies. Before setting up a telemedicine visit, you probably should contact your insurance carrier to determine if there are any out-of-pocket expenses that you may incur for these appointments. We'll add those resources for you in the transcripts at the end of this podcast. Great. Thank you. That's good information to know. Uh, also on the topic of telemedicine, uh, I have some questions about how this would look as a cardiac patient. Uh, so if I do a telemedicine visit, uh, what about my tests, you know, EKG, an echocardiogram, or blood work? Misty, that's a really great question because I think that cardiology is um, a subspecialty that really relies on ancillary testing, just as you mentioned earlier. So I think the answer to this uh, is somewhat institution-specific. Uh, providers in general are reviewing previous studies during the telemedicine visit. So when I see you on your telemedicine visit, I'll look at what's happened, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I recommend in terms of what you should be getting and when you should be getting that. So we'll talk about the, some symptoms, we'll talk about um, how you're feeling, and then we can determine sort of urgency and what type of testing you might need. So for example, if I want to get an EKG and you're at home, I might arrange for you to get your EKG in a local center so you don't need to come all the way down to see me. 
or if there's particularly urgent need to do something more extensive like an echocardiogram, we can also make arrangements for a standalone echo at a later date. So we, we've done that as well. Some programs are also setting up drive-through labs or garages, so you can do point-of-care testing in labs through drive-through options. So there are a number of things that we can do to make sure that you get your testing. In addition, some patients are actually using uh, wearable uh, wearable devices uh, that can prov provide uh, rhythm and, and tracings uh, to their providers. Um, I don't think this is a real substitute for a 12-lead EKG, as you know, but they can be really helpful in these times when we're doing telemedicine. And, um, you know, I just want to throw out there as a point of caution, caution, it may not be the best device to be wearing if you're particularly anxious and having this thing on your wrist all the time and you're constantly looking at your heart rate, um, it might be actually more anxiety provoking for you. So it's, it's really very person specific. And then of course, there are always these wearable technologies like these stickers that we send out to patients um, on a routine basis. Those get sent to you in the mail and they come back to us in the mail and they get read remotely. So all of these options are available to you at the time of our assessment at the telehealth visit. That's great to hear. And certainly uh, it sounds like that programs are having to get creative with uh, how they incorporate telemedicine into, into their practice. And along those lines, so for, for myself or other patients out there that are going to have a telemedicine visit, how can we best prepare for those appointments? And what do you see uh, telemedicine being, or see, how do you see it being used moving forward? Do you think it would be a replacement to in-person visits? Great question, Misty. Um, I will say, though, just as patients are learning about and getting used to telemedicine, so are physicians and providers. Whether or not telemedicine may be used moving forward will be based on many factors, including insurance, institution, and reimbursement policies. If your program continues to use telemedicine, it will be as a complement to your in person care and will definitely not be a replacement. Telemedicine can be especially helpful for patients at a distance, but also offers the ability to make things like sharing test results really more personal over the phone. It can also be made a lot more convenient for patients that need frequent monitoring for concurrent conditions such as, let's say, heart failure or for counseling and education. This kind of service may also be more conducive to uh, multidisciplinary care. With many hospitals instituting visitor restriction policies, telemedicine offers the opportunity for patients to have a support person with them. Talking about your symptoms or concerns with that person and developing a list of questions is really a good step to prepare just as you would for an in-person appointment. Maybe having a recent height and weight is helpful. And if you have access to a blood pressure cuff or a pulse oximeter, your vital signs before your appointment can actually really be very helpful to us as physicians. You should also figure out any kind of technology requirements that you might need prior to your appointment. Some platforms may require you to have an email address or a phone number to set it up. Understanding what you need prior to your appointment is really key to a successful and stress-free telemedicine visit. That's really, really helpful advice. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how telemedicine is incorporated into healthcare as we move forward. I think it definitely has a lot of uh, benefits and a place in, in healthcare. On a kind of a separate note, one concern that is shared among medical professionals, and I think patient advocacy organizations during this time, is, of course, access to and return to care. Uh, it's not uncommon for patients to have challenges and hurdles to obtaining medical care, such as child care and transportation. Uh, these have undoubtedly been compounded with the emergence of COVID-19, added stress due to everything that's going on right now, political unrest, the violence in our world, 
Um, in addition, of course, healthcare disparities have always existed based on socioeconomic status and race, which lead to higher risks for worse outcomes. Are we seeing the same disparities related to COVID-19? And are there any resources that patients can use during this time? The bottom line is yes, we are seeing that, Misty. I think we're in an unprecedented time, and that's a word we continue to hear over and over again, um, especially in light of recent events and the COVID-19 pandemic on top of all of this. I think it's an understatement to say that we're facing obstacles and struggles. The short answer is yes, COVID-19 is impacting us. Unprecedented is a word that we continue to hear over and over again right now in light of recent events with protests superimposed on the pandemic. And I think it's really an understatement to say that we're facing obstacles and struggles these days. What we're witnessing right now is the exposure of existing inequities in society that manifest in the way we just can't ignore anymore. It's just not possible. African-Americans and people of color account for a disproportionate amount of COVID-19 deaths. I mean, we've seen all the graphs where you compare the percentage of population that African-Americans comprise and the proportion of deaths. This is a real problem. The elderly and also those with higher burden of chronic disease, um, those from lower socioeconomic statuses are also at increased risk. So these disparities are very real and they're just coming into sharper focus at this time. I think it's really incumbent upon us as healthcare providers to be able to acknowledge this, number one, and recognize that this is a real problem when it comes to giving care to our patients and taking care of you and keeping you healthy. We're seeing record-breaking numbers of unemployment. More than 40 million people now have filed for unemployment benefits. And I know some of you are listening in. You know, some of my patients are filing for disability. Some of you guys are furloughed. And all of this comes with loss of health insurance. On top of that, we've had schools closing. We have people who don't have access to reliable childcare. Summer camps have been either canceled or delayed. And this also is another obstacle in getting back into care. One website that I can direct you to is the National Alliance of Mental Illness or www.nami.org. And under the COVID-19 guide, there's a link for resources and information. And this is for all sorts of topics that range from financial assistance to food insecurity to domestic abuse. And an additional resource also for child care assistance includes www.childcare.gov. I'd encourage all of you to take a look if you're struggling because this is for real. Individual circumstance is extremely individual and specific to you. And of course, please reach out to your local ACHD provider for resources and any connections they may have to a social worker who can help you out. Thank you so much for that thorough explanation. It's definitely a, a trying time for, for so many. And you mentioned the, the uh, NAMI, and I think so that's kind of the next question that I have on the topic of assistance. Certainly mental health is always an important issue uh, and even more so now. Uh, what resources are available to help patients that have mental health issues during this time or maybe uh, having difficulty coping? Misty, you're absolutely correct. This is such an important issue. We understand that this is a stressful time when we think about life in general, only to have it compounded by our underlying medical conditions, the pandemic and political unrest. It is normal to feel angry, stressed, scared, and even confused during these times. It is very important to reach out to healthcare physicians and providers for accurate and reliable information, as well as to family for emotional and mental support. While we know it's hard, try to make sure you're eating correct, sleeping well, and exercising every day to stay healthy. 
it's easy to be overwhelmed during these times and turn to bad habits, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or even feel like there's no hope in today's world. And if that's the case, I really encourage you to turn to a healthcare provider and seek counseling. The couple of websites that I found useful and recommended to my patients are included in the transcript of this podcast. These include websites like the CDC, where they talk about daily life and coping, as well as managing stress and anxiety. There's a WHO website where they talk about tips to handling stress. The ACHA has one on stress and COVID-19, and as well as the American Psychiatric Association, where they talk about how to take care of yourself during infectious disease outbreaks. These can all be very useful to patients. Thank you both so much. This has been so eye-opening and helpful. Uh, I hope that uh, it will also be helpful to other patients like me out there, uh, especially all the resources that were provided uh, today. Um, Again, as Dr. Sabaniagan mentioned, all resources mentioned today will be provided on the transcript for this podcast. Two of the most important takeaways for me today are the importance of knowing where to find reliable resources and information and that continuous communication with your ACHD team is key in assessing your risk as we move forward in the era of COVID. If you are not currently seeing an ACHD provider, you can search for a provider near you using the Adult Congenital Heart Association's clinic directory. That is going to be located under the Your Heart section of the website at www.achaheart.org. Thank you again to the American Heart Association for the opportunity to participate in such a timely and important podcast. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.